0: My name is John Chafee. I was trained as a pastor and this is one of the ways in which I try to do something good with that education. This is Begin Again. So if you are looking for a nuanced or interesting take on the Jesus tradition and all of its wisdom and all of its perplexity and mystery, then you found the right place. sincerely hope that this helps you to rethink some things to maybe grow in your own way for health and holiness for your benefit and for the benefit of those around you so again welcome to begin again well today's a, a special guest today is brad Jurisak. am i pronouncing the last name correctly you are okay i am had the opportunity to read his most recent book that's coming out. Uh, We're going to post this the day of on November 22nd, Out of the Embers. And Brad, thank you. This is a pleasure. It really is. Yeah.
1: Likewise. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) I I have written down, you are the Dean of Theology
0: and Culture at St. Stephen's University. I've already read a number of your other books, but her gates will never be shut. A more Christ like word, way, in God. The trilogy Jesus showed us, which is a great children's book. Um, children, can you hear me? Another children's book, but Out of the Embers is the most recent one. Yeah, is there anything yeah. else you'd like to say beyond that to explain yourself? Yeah,
1: yeah, no, there's other books out there, but you're right. I'm, I'm actually living on the west coast of Canada, but we have a modular program at St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick. So grad study students come from all over, whether in person or online, and and we have an awesome time just talking about these kind of topics there. So um, you're catching me between uh, grading papers from last semester (laughs) and preparing schedules for next semester. And I'll, I'll do a shout out to the school if you're interested in Go in for a, it. In grad studies, um, you could do an MA or an M in theology, and culture, and study with me. And so just uh, maybe in the show notes, you can put my sure. my uh, email and ssu.ca. Okay. Is there a doctoral program there as well? No, there's not, but we love to send people on from our school into doctoral programs. <laughs> we, yeah.
0: <laughs> right. Well, I. Let me say the first thought about your book, Out of the Embers, first two immediate thoughts. First one was it's called Out of the Embers, Not Out of the Ashes. And I don't know if that anyone else notices titles the way that I do, but I thought that was interesting. The talk, the title was immediately about something that's still burning, something that's still giving off light and warmth. How'd you stumble into that title there?
1: Oh, I'm sure I did a brainstorming session with some creative people, but what I, what I loved about it is exactly what you're saying. You know, I was in my mind was the image of a phoenix. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is a kind of a resurrection theme, but then at at the same time, my experience is, is that, um, well, to quote a song, uh, hope is fragile, but it's hard to kill. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so my own experience i'll use a different analogy uh was when the when the bulldozer of life came over and Mm -hmm. uh, flattened me i was shocked to find out that that somehow there was there was still something left you know i don't know why i could say god is good after my traumas and my missteps but the fact that i could was bizarre or Mm -hmm some of the stories in the books are like that too in the book is like that you know we had one guy ex-pastor in a psych ward mm-hmm. reaches out to me and he's like I don't even believe in God anymore but I called out to him and when I did the name Jesus came out of my mouth and then your my, your name came to mind so I contacted you you know like this idea yeah like whoa something was left something even yeah. there you know so I think his name yeah. was Nathan
0: if I remember
1: yeah or at least he yeah. printed as Nathan that's right. Uh, Nathan in scare quotes. Actually, I think it was actually his name. He gave me permission.
0: I I finished reading it and even early on I thought that this was the best final statement I hope about deconstruction. I think I'm a little bit like you. I saw a video of you that seemed as though I'm I'm tired of this term. And it's been in pop culture for a good number of years now. And I feel as though sometimes it's it's carried cynicism and it doesn't have a healthy energy behind it. But I honestly think your book about faith deconstruction and what's happening with American Christianity right now, I think it might be the best book I've read on the topic. And I'm not just saying that. I, I also have read a few others. And I think
1: yours is the best yeah well that that's super kind i i know what you mean though it like in the sense of okay um one can we just not you know dismiss this major thing that's happened but also like could we get through the door somehow (laughs) and um and and like i'm ready to move on but if i like if we need a doorman maybe i can be of some service and others are just gonna start heading into it you know so you and i maybe Mm -hmm things we've been where we've unraveled 10 or 15 years ago others are just getting to it so you know to, to mix metaphors again it, you know if I could be a midwife of sorts oh yeah i think something good can be birthed out of this but it's certainly not the end game mhm mhm
0: and i think i don't i hope this is, doesn't sound too corny i think i deconstructed before it was cool It was a good 12, 14 years ago. But the the catch-up of culture has been very interesting with the advent of the internet taking off. And really, people are able to do their own Google searches and the Me Too movement. Information travels so much faster. And frankly, you can learn things about the history of the faith without going to seminary in a way that didn't quite exist exactly before. But if I could... I would like to talk about the beginning chapters of your book and not go too much into the later stuff. Even though it's amazing, I think that might be good to hook some people. And sure. I I would like to start with on page 33, you do a, a list that I found was incredibly helpful about different metaphors to talk about this thing called deconstruction of faith. You have, Uh, metaphors and then you have Christ-like metaphors and what I thought was so fascinating so helpful is that I've I've had conversations with people that have gone through a deconstruction they've disassembled or or whatever but that term makes it just about a building something not something static and I thought your list of metaphors was very helpful can you tell me how did you come to this metaphor of alternative ways talking about deconstruction.
1: Yeah, some of it was like, I recognize that deconstruction is a technical term that a philosopher Mm -hmm. um, came up with in the 60s, Jacques Derrida, but that's not how it was being used anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I listened carefully to how it was being used. And most of it had to do with either um, dismantling or demolishing. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, well, I mean, yes, that's that's one way to look at it. But then friends like Brian Zahn said, but, you know, for other people, this is more like meant to be an art restoration project. Mm -hmm. You don't you don't uncover the beauty and genius of a da Vinci that's, you know, with a with a machete, (laughs) you've got to take care. And I I really thought that way about the human heart and human faith so it's one thing if we think about deconstruction as well let's go burn the churches down or something but like hang on what if we're if we're talking about a person's heart here or we're talking Mm -hmm. about their faith then in some ways we need to take much more care and and be gentle and empathetic and then on the other hand i thought you know uh, deconstruction doesn't go nearly far enough in other ways like Mm -hmm. right Uh, so rebirth or Death and resurrection, or yeah. like that, that feels much, much more thorough and deeper and and rigorous, even than while I'm having some doubts about some stuff, you know. <laughs> and so yeah, the metaphors started multiplying, and then I started seeing them more and more in scripture to the point where we won't say much about later in the book, but I will say the fountain ahead of deconstruction might have been Moses and the and Yeah. Mel- melting down the the burnt, the golden calf which is something we could certainly do today with some of what christianity's become yeah you know
0: well and isn't that part of the difficulty is so much has gotten mixed up with christianity it's almost as though how do you know what's worthwhile and to keep and what's what needs to be burned up what needs to be thrown out And, uh, I thought you did a great job and of talking about apophatic theology and how would you describe that to the average person? I've got an MDiv. I've been to seminary, but how would you describe apophaticism?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So for those who haven't heard the term before, or if it's a sloppy term, um, Another way of describing it is negative theology. And so apophatic theology um, is a way of thinking about what God is not. Mm -hmm. And so um, cataphatic theology, we make positive statements about God, like God is love. Mm. God is all knowing. God is ever present. God is, you know, these kind of positive statements. Apophatic theology says, Yes, but whatever we say about God can become a construct and even an idol. And so even mm. true things we say about God, here'd be a very practical one for people who've struggled with, with uh, let's call them daddy issues. Um, yes, God is a father, but then you also have to ask right away, how is God not a father? How is God not like mm. your father? How, how is father a um, much too small and narrow of a description of God? Mm. So you, so that would be one example, or a more extreme one uh, that comes up in the, among the first Christians is we've thought of God almost like as a god, and he's like he's not a god among other gods, he's he that's a category error. <laughs> um, in fact, even to call God a being is is too small too narrow we, we would say god is beyond being and in him everything lives and moves and has it has its being. so now what we're doing there is we're saying what are what are the words and concepts and images we have for god that okay they describe him to a degree but also they mm. become a cage <laughs> they become yeah. a box we put them in and so apophatic theology is saying those kind of boxes actually hinder intimacy with God. Mm-hmm. And so what a great thing to deconstruct then, right? We're going to deconstruct every, every box that limits God or hinders our approach to him. Well, I'm into that then. That's not just destructive or demolition of, of faith. In fact, it's a recovery and a un, um, sort mm. of an unveiling. So isn't, um, the tearing of the, Veil in the temple, a kind of deconstruction, right? Uh, uh-huh. But what is it unto? Well, it's unto drawing near, not running away. Apophatic
0: theology. You know what? It, as you're talking, it reminded me of uh, Meister Eckhart when he says, yeah. I pray God rid me of God, which yes. to some people, that sounds like a paradox. And of course, he's a master of paradox, but there's I love the idea, and I think I I preached it once on a Good Friday service, that sometimes it takes for God to dismantle our idolatrous views of God.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: And uh, I found that thought so liberating, but I could see it. It scared the average churchgoer. And I, I think that your book is fantastic. I really do, but it seems as though if you haven't been hurt by the church or felt the limitations of the theology you're living in, you may not want to pick up this book yet, but maybe in a few years you might.
1: It's possible, you know, I, because I do put out the trauma there so directly, right? Right. It, it, that, that, okay, what if you've been traumatized? But remember also that I, I, I like to um, talk about how it can also be very liberating, So not just Mm -hmm. through trauma, but like, wow, if I could have an ever expansive view of God that no matter how good my experience has been, he's better than that. Right. So, yeah, um, I'm hoping I'm hoping that even those who've not been traumatized could make some use of it wherever they have are still, let's say, uh, limiting God themselves, you know. Oh, yes. And through like, let's say too much certainty. About who God is and what God is, and and reducing God to doctrines we've just inherited, mm-hmm. without really interrogating them. And so, for those folks, I'm like, actually, you could probably do with a little deconstruction if if you're just cruising, <laughs> and if you think like, uh, um, uh, uh, the comforts of of suburban Christianity are sort of um describe god a, a projection of my own mortgage onto <laughs> onto the lord um that's probably gonna need to be challenged and so my book would be, help them to be proactive in that sense and especially around the dostoevsky chapters on mm-hmm. have you really looked at the problem of evil and and suffering and or, or, or and ideology too comfortable yeah yeah, yeah. especially in. in the culture wars now right so yeah
0: yeah I I think that your book um, and people like Brian Zond as well, and even Pete ends. I did, uh, I went to an event that he was at uh, a week or so ago, and it feels as though the best theologians like yourself are the ones that they're motivated by almost a pastoral response. You're not just trying to do scholasticism for scholasticism's sake. It's, it's that this, this type of really good theology, like you said, it's incredibly liberating. And I'll be honest, I worked in church world for 20 years before shifting to the university. And I remember many times my supervisors would tell me to stop quoting John of the Cross, Julian of Norwich, Soren Kierkegaard. And there's a part of me that feels as though we really set ourselves up for this kind of collapse by not doing good scholastic pastoral theology.
1: Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, I would I would strongly agree. I I do think you know, you I'm not I'm not a very good Christian, but I do think I'm a good theologian. Okay. And this is why this is why I think that. It's exactly <laughs> what you said. I think theology should be coming in behind the real questions that people are struggling with and that it might describe after the fact their encounters with god and sort of bring a bit of an analysis to it, but it shouldn't be like prescriptive so when i think about the actual order of operations here it's like i was a pastor 20 years i found out some of the real questions people have and some of the real stumbles we make Mm. and then it raises these hard questions and then I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go ask Kierkegaard what he thinks. Oh, <laughs> and, good. <laughs> and maybe he can tell me like what to say to these folks. But I think it's, yeah, pastoral at the very heart of it. I wouldn't, in fact, I wouldn't have written it otherwise. I mean, it's not clear to me that a, 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 a theology that is uh, uprooted from pastoral realities is worse mm. than very much at all. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it was. Actually quite vulnerable, I think. And you start off the book rather early on, again, being vulnerable, talking about how you had reached your terminus as a pastor in 2008. And I think people are used to hearing of congregants hitting that wall, but it's very rare that you hear somebody from a pastoral field talk about hitting that wall as publicly as you did. So can you tell us about that? Because I think people need to know that pastors have these same questions too.
1: Yeah, it's really true. You know, there's, I have a lot of, uh, acquaintances who are ex pastors and I Mm -hmm. guess, I guess they might say this stuff, but they don't have a platform anymore. Somehow I still ended up with a platform to say, you know, I was a pastor and here's what happened to me. Um. Others of my friends, they would only say those in like, in a Sex Addicts Mm -hmm. Anonymous room or something, you know, where things have come apart at the seams and it's really, really hard to be a pastor. And so Mm -hmm. um, one example I can give is how just, um, you know, I go and I, I did a MA and an MDiv and four years of Bible college and I came away with a couple of counseling courses and now I'm supposed to, I'm seen as a, pastoral counselor in a congregation of traumatized people Mm. the fact is Mm -hmm. i was not qualified for that and and in my own brokenness i suppose you could say that my relationship to the congregation was was codependency like um the 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 Mm -hmm. wife or husband or child of an alcoholic that's not on them that's on me but i didn't know better and I definitely shouldn't have been counseling them. And I'm like, what What's going on with this? So pastors experience these kind of pressures, and then over time, um, long-term st- stress and disappointment, um, and disillusionment really leaves you, you know, in a bad place. I remember a, a guy coming to me and saying, you know, my um, my pastor. Uh, really let me down. I'm like, well, how did he let you down? It's like, well, um, it was so bad I can't even go to church anymore. I'm like, oh yeah, I've heard these stories. I'm I'm sorry. Uh-huh. What did he do? It's like, well, he didn't believe in young earth creationism, and and I just had to leave because he's a heretic. You know, I'm like, what? Wow. <laughs> so you had a disagreement, and you were more conservative than your pastor. So now you just watch TV preachers, and this is on the pastor somehow. So I'm like. When I, hear, when I hear how, how uh, congregations have experienced um, spiritual abuse through leadership, I understand that, but I also know that that's a two-way street. And sometimes uh, pastors have been crucified by the expectations, mm-hmm. either of the congregation or the ones they've internalized for themselves. And for me, that was part of it. I sure. needed to hold something together that was coming apart. And when God wasn't holding it together, I, what is that? well messiah complex i guess so <laughs> yeah it's me- it's messy i don't i don't even know what to say like god bless the pastors but i'm i'm glad i'm not one i don't right you know i think i had some really great experience as a pastor but i i probably have ptsd from it too so <laughs> you know. it's it's
0: a sad but true true thing and and I don't exactly know what it looks like moving forward. I do think that maybe American Christianity has hit a a lockstep because I think we've at least become aware that – I think Brian Zahn talks about it in your preface. He wrote the preface, correct? The forward, yeah. The forward, sorry. And he talks about how American Christianity feels like an extension of European colonialism that was mixed with American capitalism. And I think that we've kind of maybe gone as far as we could without openly acknowledging that. Because when you have the competing interests of keeping a church open versus the competing interests of trying to speak a deep and truthful faith that's grounded in tradition, those yeah. things don't always go well together.
1: No, you're exactly right. I think that's right. Now, here's a here's a glitch that Lisa Sharon Harper has thrown in the mix. Uh, a Brian glitch? and I. Oh, man. So here's the glitch. So Brian Zahn and I were at part of a conference recently in New Orleans. I Zoomed in for it. He flew there. Uh Um, And one of the other panelists was Lisa Sharon Harper. And the the topic was something like... inconvenient or inevitable or oh, maybe it was unavoidable conversations that was the name of the conference (laughs) so we're we're part of this and we're talking like you and I are talking about the state of the Christian church and and Uh in fact how how that brand has become like really problematic and and in fact it's been co-opted in some in some areas by white nationalism and all of that. And then Lisa Sharon Harper, she's this elder statesman in the body of Christ, a black activist pastor. Okay. She says this, "Well, I just want you to know if you leave the church because you're offended that it by its white nationalism without investigating black faith in America, leaving is still an act of white nationalism." Or wow. what do you call it? <laughs> yeah,
0: Wow. Was it
1: white? You know what I mean? And so, uh-huh. sh- so, sh- so you and I have these assumptions when we were talking church there. And I'm like, that's the glitch. She throws a grenade in the room, right? And says, <laughs> well, that's still very in house of you, isn't it? You know, that yeah. white people go to church and white people are offended by church and white people are offended by how white the church is. Like, have you been to a black church yet? <laughs> so, um, I did. I am very interested then in what we missed in, from that from that voice and from the Latino Absolutely. voices, and from the alternative voices outside the camp. But but isn't it the status quo that we're talking about, right? And that yeah. that requires the kind of I don't know. Is it too late to save it? Even I, I, I'm not sure. We'll see. There might be some members there.
0: Absolutely. You know, I went to a predominantly black seminary here in Philly. And I think it was exactly what I needed to go through. Okay. Mm, and my, yeah. my preaching professor was this great black professor, just these amazing sermons. And I, I learned so much about delivery, of course, but his content was always so good, but I don't know if I can summarize a whole semester in one sentence, but he said, black sermons get to the point where the people in the pews will turn to each other and say, did th- did they really just say that? <laughs> and it's the idea of just poke the bear, but it, it feels yeah. as though um, the black church has done a better job of staying prophetic in America, far better. And yeah, that's that my feels observation right on the East coast.
1: I'm with you there. And I, I, I'm so glad that you had that experience. I, I think that that sort of, Demonstrates the point, doesn't it? If we could, if mm-hmm. we could have that broader, diverse experience, we we actually might be less jaded, right? Oh, there is still a prophetic voice. We just yeah. need to know where to find it and hear what it sounds like, and maybe even learn to emulate it.
0: Once a year, uh, usually in the spring semester, I teach Intro to Christian Spirituality for for college mm-hmm. freshmen and sophomores, okay. and okay. one of them said that their absolute favorite lecture of the whole semester was John of the cross and talking about the dark night of the soul, which you actually talk about in um, the same chapter with Moses and all of that. And it feels to me as though what's happening is there is something like a large collective dark night of the soul that people don't even know about, but it's, it's fascinating because it's right there in the tradition Yes. but people don't know it because it's not talked about as a normative part of the faith to
1: go through. That. Right. Right. So yeah. That's you, really good. Okay. Could you riff on that? I, yeah. I could riff on that probably. So, so how you said it was so good though, because it's sort of like this, it's like, oh, no, I'm losing my faith. It's like, no, this is the faith. <laughs> but I'm sort of in this dark night of the soul. Yes, that's the tradition. <laughs> that's
0: well, Welcome to the tradition.
1: Welcome. And that it's like, oh, no, I've lost God. It's like, no, it's just dark because you're inside his fist and it's the safest place you've ever
0: Oh, been. that's a good one.
1: Yeah, so I remember actually a congregant telling me that that's how he described it. He. He was saying i'm going through dark night as a soul it's like and i'm like oh that's an interesting word for it and then he describes this idea that initially um he was terrified that he didn't love jesus anymore but he's crying as he tells me i'm like well then where are the tears coming from absolutely right? and then we finally did come to that conclusion that yeah it's dark right now but um, in the actual poem that John of the Cross writes and then does commentary on it, he he does describe it, it almost like this safe place. It's yes. Like, instead of instead of seeing it as and I have seen this too, where it's like I'm a kite that's had its string cut, and now I'm crashed into a tree. Well, that's not the dark night of the soul. That's something else going <laughs> on. But but like what what if, what if in our tradition, um, we highly value that experience and learn to discern it when it's happening, and then walk with those for whom it um, they've they've lost. Uh, let's let's say uh, how does he term it? It's like you don't sense God, and he's really good about this. The has Aridity.
0: Yeah.
1: The aridity, which uh, is a good. You know that's an old ancient word for dryness, right? So it's I'm so dry right now. Well, what what happened was a lot of pastors would address this dryness as if it's an apathy problem. It's mm-hmm. like it's not an apathy problem at all. Well, maybe for some it is, but if you can identify it as apathy, then it's still not the dark night of the soul. That's well, maybe true. it's mental illness. No, then it's still not dark it's night. Still of not the soul. dark
0: night of the soul. Uh, yeah.
1: But I've had a tragedy. Then it's not dark night of the soul. So he's doing what it's not. But then he's like. No, but there is this authentic kind of aridity where we we go out into the desert and we wrestle our demons and we meet God, but it's yeah. a very strange, strange place. And one that Christ encountered too in himself, mm. he would have, he would have experienced this perhaps in the 40 days in the wilderness, certainly on the cross, um, yes. he goes there with us, right? Yeah.
0: I, I didn't think of this beforehand, but Ewan McGregor did the movie a couple years ago called last days in the desert where it's yes. Christ in the desert. And of course he has a conversation with, with Satan and he yeah. plays the part of Satan as well. Yeah. I, I was like, that's brilliant.
1: It was brilliant. It's a, it's, it's a slow movie, beautiful mm-hmm. videography, but the idea is really important. I think and where it is, Perhaps what Jesus was confronting was his potential shadow side.
0: Oh, in um, Jungian terms, yeah.
1: Yeah. And and that it's a potential shadow side in, in that will will he surrender to what he could be and and the demands of the of of the ego. And he's like, Well, no, actually I won't. But but I did. So, um, you know, there's a couple ways you can get to humility. One is through perfect surrender and another is 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 screwing up royally. So I I took I took the screwing up royally side and Jesus took the perfect surrender side and we met somehow, which was kind of neat.
0: That's always a miracle, right? You know, I, I think what makes your your story of 2008 makes you credible to write this book. And I think it's in Ascent to Mount Carmel, John of the Cross says, be careful who you talk to about your dark night of the soul. Because just like you already said, unless somebody's been through it, they'll give you bad advice. It's like, oh, you don't like reading Bible anymore? Here's your problem. You should get reading it every single day now. It's like, oh, you hate the treadmill? Let's just speed it up then. That's yeah. All. That's not the, That's not the solution, right?
1: No, but, no.
0: But here's two, two flip side questions. I'd love okay. to hear... What was the the easiest part of the book to write? And then what do you think was the most difficult part to write? You can do either one first. It doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, okay. Uh, Let's see. Boy, in retrospect, none of it felt very easy. But I suppose... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the easiest part was when people would write me emails and I would copy and paste them into (laughs) the book.
0: (laughs) <laughs> a good number of anecdotes and stories, which is great.
1: Yeah. And I, I think in some ways that was, you know, I want to say that was easy because it was relational. I mean, it was hard yeah. stuff in the sense mm-hmm. of that these, these were people in a lot of pain, but, but somehow it's like telling stories about real life is um, I don't know if easy is the right word, but that did flow. I could do that. Um, and then and then some of the the harder parts to write, there was two kinds of hard parts. Mm. One hard part is was just the part that required more research than I was expecting. And I would go mm. down a rabbit hole. And I'm like, oh, this is deeper than I thought. And how am I going to be able to come out of this and communicate it? I don't know if I can, you know, mm. so I'm down in it's sort of like if you're down in a gold mine and you meet these old miners and you're like, okay, how am I going to, how am I going to set a kiosk up at the surface? <laughs> yeah. Um, the other hard part was like even just emotionally. So, yeah. So when I, when I, when I even just copy and pasted my old resignation letter in, um, I had the worst nightmares I've had in 20 years uh, that night, you know, so I, Uh, when I, when I was sort of going through my meltdown, um, uh, I could, I, I was getting triggered. I was triggering myself with it and Mm -hmm. with, and I'm like, well, this is interesting. And by triggering that's become such a pop term too. It's like everything triggers us now, but I actually mean like (laughs) that biological triggering of where there's a cortisol problem and, and you go into fight or flight mechanism and then you can't Mm -hmm. turn the uh, internal alarm systems off and it buggers up your sleep. And it, like, so actually bodily reactions to, mm-hmm. to those parts. I'm like, oh, I guess I'm not as healed as I thought it was. And I accept that. Oh, So I head yeah. off to the 12-step meeting, talk to my sponsor, talk to my godfather. They walk talk me off the list. But I'm like, this is worth doing if, if, uh, yeah. if it's going to help others, you know. You can't so meet I, someone
0: where you haven't gone yourself.
1: Yeah. Maybe. I like it seems like jesus didn't have to do it the hard way well he did it the hard way but i mean okay. like without the way you know he's not a cautionary tale of of failure but i i'm happy to be one like if i can it's weird though because you'd rather just climb in a hole and sure become uh, obscure but i do feel strongly that the lord's i I could be wrong but it it's like I'm not done paying forward the mercy I received. Oh. And and so okay, okay. If that's the cost of it, I'm happy for that. I'll do that. Wow.
0: Well, and I feel as though I have been around people that have given bad advice about deconstruction and they're really just speaking from as if they're an authority on something they haven't really gone through. And I don't I don't know if you listen to to rap music, but Kendrick Lamar did an album called Mr. Morale and the big steppers. It was his first one in five years, but he wrote it over COVID. And the whole thing is an exploration of grief. Wow. It's an exploration of trauma from his father and from his mother and speaking about his own family and his own processing. And there actually was a line, which you said of, uh, I guess I'm not as healed as I thought I was. Mm. And there Mm. seems to be, And he he identifies as a Christian. He's an artist, so he's obviously showing all the dualities of humanity at the same time. But I really think it's almost like this season of deconstruction has been happening the past five, six years, however many. It has the potential to create some really good art if people are led into it in a helpful way, you know?
1: Yeah, that's true. I've seen that. I think that's really that's exactly mm. right, and the the trick for some is like you know you know artists where they're really inspired by their dark nights, yeah, but they're not sure how to come out of them without ruining their art that's <laughs> true, so I don't want to go back to being happy, clappy because that's not it, you know, but maybe there's a way forward that carries along the wisdom that came from that. those that's right places right
0: and and I think. You only have one, if I remember. You include a a drawing in there from David Hayward. Yeah. And uh, for those that don't have a copy of it, it's a man sitting in a boat, and he's baiting a shark with a question mark, and the the shark is deconstruction, which is, you could probably unpack that for a while too. But is there any art that you found that you might have included in the book, but you didn't?
1: um yeah it's expensive to put art in books especially if in col- in coloring. I didn't know that yeah <laughs> it's like really not yeah and then you've got the copyright issues and all of that but I'm really drawn to crucifixion art uh for me mm. for me the punchline had been that when I this is what saved my life you know and you you saw it in the book Simone Veil saved my life mm-hmm. along with the living people who walked me through stuff and and her thing was this that that um when we can acknowledge that the goodness of God and the affliction of humanity is a real contradiction. Mm. And if we can stop trying to to rationalize the two together through our theodicies, which just end up making God evil or evil good. And then then say, this this is a real contradiction and just be astonished by it. Mm. And then see the distance between the two is infinite. So the goodness of God is infinitely distant from the affliction of humanity. But that contradiction functions like pinchers that grab you and arrest you and throw you down. Oh, wow. At the foot of the cross, at the foot of the cross, I looked up and I saw in that man, the goodness of God and the affliction of man intersecting, Mm -mm. spanning the distance and the whole timeline of humanity between the two nail holes in his hands and my affliction nailing me to his heart and from his wounds healing love flowing out i'm just that's just all simone bay that's what i saw in 2008 2009 2009 when i it was the beginning what was the end of my suicidal ideations and the beginning of my uh beginning of my healing and i'm like and and if and if I take everything I just said to you and I, I bring it as an explanation, it, it still doesn't work. It was an experience. It's a it's an encounter, and I think that's the crux. <laughs> literally, oh yeah, <laughs> um, is is I don't the people who come through deconstruction and become cynical atheists or whatever, yeah, who I'm like did you ever meet him <laughs> and i'm like what a disservice the church has done wherever it raised mm. people to, to without facilitating an encounter with the living one yeah and if he's just an idea or a doctrine then he can dis- be displaced by the next idea or doctrine or ideology that comes along that feels a little better mm. but if we've if we've known him somehow and and i i explore that that living connection isn't one thing. It's not always like a dramatic encounter, but a living, a real and living connection with a a person. That's not so easy to walk away from. And it means everything else can burn and it's not a problem. (laughs) You know, I guess he's the embers. So,
0: Oh, you know, that makes me think about Bonaventure talks about the burning love of the crucified one. And that it's, it's in Christ that we have the, the collision of opposites. The goodness of God and the suffering of man, as you had mentioned. You know, I was thinking um, earlier this past week of the image of Joseph of Arimathea. And I, I think that this image might be a little troublesome to some people. But the idea that Joseph laid Jesus to rest and buried him was a part that led up to the resurrection Wow. And just the idea that maybe for some people, uh, perhaps this is going too far. I don't know. It feels as though right now we need something of the opposite of a midwife. We need to help people put, bury into the ground their ideas of Jesus so that the better one can actually come next. You could say water into wine. You can mix the metaphors however you want. And I understand the tomb as womb is a really good analogy as well. When Christ comes out, he's giving birth to a new humanity. But I think that there's been so few people present to speak to the death of what we had. Does that make sense? So that oh, we yeah. have this space for the the, the next Christianity. I don't, I don't know if that's the right word. The next Reformation to give birth yeah. to what Christianity can become for us now
1: is that yeah. too far well my m- first of all my experience is that too far has not been the problem <laughs> you know not okay <laughs> doing do, do half asked has been the problem a lot of the happy clappy deconstructionism has has, mm. has has not gone far enough and so i'm totally with you on this um i do i do think that for some um midwifery can be a really good analogy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but but jesus and paul talk about death and resurrection mm. and so what and and it what is dying and what what is being raised to life i i do resonate with you on this in fact um i have a story here's what i'm really grateful about i'm getting i have fresh stories about this every week and so i just email just, you yeah or i meet them uh so i have a friend named craig in australia and he said he just he's been working with a a guy who he's an evangelist of all things for the salvation army and and he says like this guy came in to to work through some recovery stuff with the the program he was running with the Salvation Army, but the guy was so hateful of Christianity. He's like, I I just can't handle it. I don't want to hear the name Jesus ever. And Christians are part of the problem. And he was right, you know? So he leaves the program and disappears. Well, he comes back a few years later, he's just contacted Craig again this last week. And he's like, actually, um, I looked for healing everywhere else but christianity so he did a trek through asia he he tried on hinduism he tried on buddhism he tried he was trying all their stuff and actually a lot of them have very helpful things if 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 you know where they're coming from i don't know that he did i just know it didn't work for him so Mm. now he comes back full circle (laughs) having buried christianity and even then he's like craig i need your help but you still can't use the name jesus And we're still i still won't be a christian and so craig in his wisdom said um could we try this i want you to ask perfect love to pour perfect love into you and see if that will help so they did and the guy the guy immediately entered a process where over the last week or so every day it's like He just constantly feels this outpouring of perfect love from the one who Craig is calling perfect love, who Craig and I agree is Jesus. But (laughs) Jesus is like so humble that he's willing to hear this guy anonymously. Right. Which is what AA and all those guys are doing in the first place. Uh It was like God is love. and And if and if his name has been bastardized in our culture and he has to come by another name, perfect love is quite a good one. Yeah. And um, and I'm not offended if Jesus isn't offended. Like, is it withholding that liberating flow then? No. So come back to what you've just said. Then It's like maybe that's what had to happen for this guy. Maybe oh. maybe uh, mm. he had to put to death um, everything associated with the kind of Christianity that had actually exacerbated his addictions and wow. maybe Maybe in doing so, something's come to life. But like the disciples, you can—they don't recognize them after the resurrection. Something that's right.
0: Oh, that does go further. He, okay,
1: yeah. So, I mean, we could this will preach, man. But I'll leave it to you <laughs> to do. <laughs> uh, I love that image, um, but you, so just to reiterate, no, I don't think you've gone too far with it. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, rebirth and death. Oh, one side note. P.S. I have I'm I have an amazing student right now. He he's about my age. He's he's the former head of palliative care in the hospital in our city. And he's doing his M.A. um, in theology and culture. And his thesis, his his M.A. thesis is on training hospice care workers in well palliative care workers to mm-hmm. be midwives for death wow it's like awesome and i'm thinking that is really relevant to this conversation sure. um uh being midwives to to bring to death the idolatrous images of god mm. that have to be uh come down but all it, not and also um someone on twitter the other day called it uh, divinely assisted egocide. Oh, I saw so, that. That was really that good. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that was you. You probably said that. Right? No, no. I um, I, I, was, I was like, it, it
0: actually reminds me, there is in Sufism, there's the idea of fauna, F-A-N-A. I'm not sure how you pronounce it or uh, spell it in Arabic, but the idea is ego annihilation. Yeah. And I, I thought that was, that was gorgeous.
1: Yeah. I, I And just to do a little caveat there. Um, so... So there are the those who are would would say no, you have to have an ego to have your right. like you don't right. annihilate your personhood. <laughs> um, but egoism, egoism, if that's what we mean. So in, in 12 step recovery, we'll talk about the ego, but what mm. we mean is the enthroned ego, the demanding mm. ego, the that. So it's it's not maybe not actually the death of the ego but it is the death of the reign of the ego as
0: oh i like that
1: yeah and no but others would say no no it's the death of the ego like probably simone bay would do that and i'm like (laughs) but she was pretty willful herself so yeah well
0: let's let's start to to close it out I, i really do think your book is a fantastic final statement on deconstruction tell people when they're ready and if it helps them to go ahead and read it I think that some people will be surprised at how vulnerable parts of the certain stories are. I don't think that the theology will be off putting. I actually found in my own work, people are often amazed when they find out really good theology from Gregory of Nyssa or the Cappadocians. They're like, how come I was never told this before? I was like, I know, right? This should be everywhere. Um, But if, if, Deconstruction as a phase in America is starting to shift behind us. What do you hope would be the thing that happens next for all of us?
1: Okay. <clears throat> well, and this is where my conversations with my godfather were so helpful. So what I what I hope is um, that we find a tra- trajectory from alienation to communion. So deconstruction, as necessary oh, yeah. as it is, as it is has be, has been experienced by a lot of people as kind of alienating they're like i had to leave that but now i'm lonely okay. believers as you call yeah, it the, the yeah. believers yeah and so so um and even those who just maybe weren't part of something like that. But but this idea of alienation, I think, is is a hallmark of our culture right now. Mm. So Mm -hmm. if we go from alienation to communion, what would that mean? And so my godfather, uh, David Goa, he calls that um, uh, presence in communion. In other words, where you and I are present to one another, we Mm -hmm. are in communion and that that happens everywhere that we have exchanges of grace and that can be that, that's that can be everywhere so in mm. in, this, in the orthodox tradition what it is to be a royal priesthood is to be a priesthood for the whole world uh entering into these grace connections so like for example i spent my wife and i spent an hour in an uber the other day <laughs> on our way to the airport uh-huh. Where we had a powerful grace connection with with uh, a secular Iranian woman who has to go back into Iran. Wow! Like a week from now, and her family is there, and there's this incredible danger. And but my wife is so good at listening and so good at engaging. I'm watching this exchange of grace, and I'm like, this this is communion. Mm. And and we were receiving from her, and hopefully she was receiving from us. Then we get on a plane, we go down to to Miami, and my we're doing a we're doing a a, a retreat. But my wife was leading the women, so I went and hid in in a rabbi's office because this group shares space with a synagogue uh-huh. well this this rabbi comes in her name's robin and i'm like oh i'm sorry i'm in your office she's like no no stay and i'm like but what are you doing and she's like, well we've got to do the be mitzvah stuff for the girls and and I'm uh-huh. like oh, really and she goes do you want to stay so i just sat there and for the next two hours i was one of the you know 13 year old girls oh. taking, <laughs> uh preparing for this uh and 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 getting my hebrew lesson and learning about leah and why the fourth child is so important because judah's name is praised and i'm like what and Uh i and and she was so hospitable and then i made amends where i could for where christians had Mm. expressed anti-semitism towards her and we she really talked about friendship of divine humans in connection i'm like oh good lord this is that again so (laughs) That's what I'm thinking, right? And so it's not about a big movement that's top down. It's about I I couldn't. Mm. What I hope is that in our sense of lack, like we felt it in lockdown. Mm -hmm. That's true. In my neighborhood, in lockdown, we were so frustrated by the enforced alienation by the pandemic that we rebelled, um, not in irresponsible ways, but we finally, after 10 years, learned our neighbor, our neighbor's names like, What was I 10 years? I didn't know their names. It took COVID for me to care. Yeah, but anyway, so that's I think that for me is the central uh, outcome that I'm hoping for and trying to sow into alienation to presence and communion, which is the kingdom of God, which is grace, which is maybe a church bigger than Christianity. So
0: that's a, a very loaded statement. I'm in I'm in favor of it. A, a church larger than Christianity. The yeah. idea that these words are actually more expansive than we were told. Oh you yeah. know. Um I just finished reading Jordan Daniel Wood's book. Yes. Miss the Confession. Maximus. I just finished yeah. it like three days ago. And the idea of the lagoi everywhere, that every somehow everything is an echo of the primary Lagos. And yes. then, but this the dualism of saying what's sacred and not sacred rather than learning to see the Christ in everyone and everything. Maybe that's yeah. part of what needed to crumble. Yes. The, the differentiation and not being able to see the Christ in everything.
1: Yeah. And and people don't need to worry that we're going to discard Jesus in the mix. You know, I have a friend Safi mm. Kaskas. He's a Quranic scholar. He's translated the Quran and he calls me, you know, he's a Muslim. And he's like, Brad, I I need you to help me. Um, uh, I've been invited to talk about interfaith peacemaking at a a university in Pakistan. But Jesus said, we must do this two by two. So would you go with me? I'm like, what? That's (laughs) amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So Safi, so, so what is he doing there? He, he, oh, he's not, he's seeing bigger than our divisions. But he's not requiring an erasure of our distinctiveness he's saying come as a christian i'll come as a muslim uh we're not going to water down our faith we're going to say these these faiths can coexist in in love and compete for goodness with each other and (laughs) and partner in peacemaking so that he says because so it's him saying so this is what Jesus means. My blessed are the peacemakers. They will be the children of God. Do you want to be a peacemaker with me? Should we go obey Jesus together? I'm like, but you're a Muslim. And he's like, you can't be a good Muslim and not follow Jesus. Have you not read the Quran? <laughs> I'm like, Well, now I have. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so this kind of thing, it blows my mind. And it's probably where that's another thing where we're heading next, I think. Um, exactly what Maximus will do for us and what would, would would do for us to find it uh christ in, in everywhere and in all things right uh, drawing us to himself
0: Oh, that's beautiful so last last question okay last one can you do you have an idea of what a next book could be do you have a new book already percolating in you has this has writing this brought up new things for you that you'd like to comment on next?
1: In fact, yes. Um, so uh, I haven't distilled it all down, but I, yeah. in my mind, it's the intersection of two, two things I'm seeing so that we've already raised today. So okay. the intersection of the need for a living connection with ultimate reality and a Christian explanation for why I see it beyond Christianity. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So and and some of that will be stories of, you know, my agnostic friends who are addicts who are going, I don't believe in God, but I can tell you this, whatever God is or isn't is in me and in you and bigger wow. than both of us. And it's changing us and transforming us. That this is the agnostics talking. So I'm like, OK, <laughs> how how does a Christian talk about this? Uh-huh. Um, And so if I could, if I, if I can work out how to, to describe that, you'll see it in my next book, but I have lots of stories. It's just, (laughs) those are great. They're fun. It's, it's hard to do. It's hard to do. It's hard to talk about without getting accused of something. But my, my dear wife, she always says, well, who's going to hate it. This hate us this time, (laughs) but we don't care anymore. (laughs) Well, I
0: think you do fantastic work for the world. Thank you so much. I really think um, you're one of the best voices for Christianity in the West right now. I can't speak globally because I can only read English. So,
1: Well, that's very kind. It's so weird, right? Because my sense of disqualification somehow appeals to you as a qualification. <laughs> <laughs> but the, where they meet is that mercy. So thanks for showing me mercy and for hearing me out. All right. Well,
0: thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. Thank you. You as well.